0: Hey, if you open up your Bibles, please, to Philippians chapter 3, where we will continue where we left off. Father, again, we thank you for this morning. And as we open up your word, Holy Spirit, illuminate your word to us, speak to us, uh, reveal to us what we need to learn and to grow in our understanding of who you are and our relationship with you. Uh, Mold us, shape us, change us, Lord, just uh, do a work, a fresh work this morning in our hearts as, as we study your word. Again, Lord, we thank you for this fellowship. We thank you for that to be able to come and praise you, and honor you, and glorify you, and uh, not only in song, but we just thank you for all your provision through the ties, the gifts, the offers. Lord, duplicate those as you see fit for your kingdom and your purpose. And Lord, as we open every word, we want to worship you, continue to worship you, not only today, opening up your word and studying, but every day, Lord, we desire to partake and to listen to hear what you have for us. In Jesus' name, amen, amen. Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord, for me to write the same things to you is not tedious, but for you it is safe. Now here we start off uh, today in chapter 3, verse 1, and we see the first thing here, finally. Now, first of all, remember, Paul is in prison. He's writing this letter to the believers in Philippi, and he's addressing some challenges within that church because we will see later on a couple of ladies are having some challenges and conflict within the church. Paul is addressing what the solution is, what the answer is to conflict between people, even as brothers and sisters. I know it's a very rare thing to ever happen to have conflict between brothers and sisters of the Lord. But it can occasionally can happen. And so he addresses that for the Philippian believers then. And it also applies for us. God has it for us today. And he starts this part and he says, finally, my brethren." So he's speaking to the believers here. And it's like a good pastor. He always says, oh, we're about to finish finally. And he's, you, know, you think he's going to wrap up his sermon. And an hour later, he's still going. Because here we see Paul is writing. And he's halfway through the letter. He isn't finishing up the letter. But the word here finally means is, as for the rest of what I have to say to you, is what that means. He's switching. And he's going to go right to the heart of the letter of what he's saying, bringing attention to the Philippian readers Finally, Okay, I'm getting to the main point here of the letter. So that is for you and I. Finally, what is the main point that Paul wants to talk to you and I about? What is he talking to believers about? Well, he says, finally, my brother, rejoice in the Lord. That's the theme of my whole letter is joy. Rejoice in the Lord. It's a commandment he's saying. Rejoice in the Lord. Now, what he's not saying here is rejoice in the circumstances or the situation you're finding yourself in, in conflict and disunity within the church there. That I didn't tell you to rejoice in. Because you can't rejoice into those really bad, horrible times you find yourself that God allows in. Or you find yourself creeping in or being part of at work or at home or wherever it may be. Those are really bad situations. Those are really terrible times. But you don't rejoice in those. What Paul is saying is get your mind, your eyes, and your thinking off of the situation at hand the circumstance at hand, that person that is bringing the conflict at hand, and you now need to put your mind and rejoice, command you to rejoice in the Lord. Do you want to solve the depression in your mind, the deep sadness, the challenges, emotional challenges and the thinking that can really cause you to spiral out of control? You need to learn to ponder on rejoicing Command in your mind to rejoice in the Lord in all the circumstances and situations you find yourself in. And the sooner you can do that, the quicker you come out of the funk. Come out of that situation that is causing you to spiral out of control. Put your eyes on Jesus. Pressing on to Jesus is the key. Rejoice in him. You can only rejoice in him. That is what brings joy. That's what brings the, 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 the situation and the, and, the, and the circumstances in perspective of what's happening. Is to keep your eyes on him. Because when you're pressing on to Jesus, when you keep in rejoicing in the Lord, then you will come to the understanding and of the simple fact is this. Regardless of the circumstance, regardless of the situation, regardless of that, just not working out the way I planned. You'll come to the realization, the Lord is on the throne. You'll come back to the simple truth, Lord, you are on the throne. You're in control. I may not feel like I'm in control, and the situation's not in control. It is absolutely a horrifying situation. But I'm going to rejoice on you. I'm going to start worshiping you. I'm going to ponder on you because the more I do that, the less I get falled into the miry goop of depression and sadness and pondering on the situation I find myself in. And remind myself, Lord, you're on the throne. You are my Lord and Savior. You are in control. And you just know it, believe it, you trust it with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And God will lift you up. Like an eagle's wings, he'll lift you up in the situation you find yourself in. And that's what he's saying here because he says, for me, I, to write the same things to you, I met you in person, I said the same things, I meet you now and writing these things, I'm saying the same things, it's not tedious for me. My brother says, it's not tedious at all because I know it's true and I know it's right and I know that's what you need. So for me as a pastor, a lot of pastors, they don't like to only teach a certain amount and then they have to go find another congregation and teach the same thing over again because they feel a little awkward teaching the same things all the time. Not me oh no, no, we're going to go all 66 books and man, hang on, we're going to go through 166 books again. <laughs> and I don't I find it tedious at all teaching you the same truths over and over and over. Why? Because we need to be reminded. We come to the table. Why? Because we need to be reminded of the finished work on the cross by our Lord and Savior. That He is a the Lord is on the throne and he has forgiven you, he has saved you, and you have eternal hope. That's what Paul is saying here press on to the Lord, press on to Jesus because that is where the finished work is. that's what we put our trust in and Paul continues here. Why does he warn them here? Why am I tediously telling you to rejoice in the Lord and not at the situation you find yourself in, in the church right now? Because look, beware of dogs verse 2. beware of evil workers, beware of the mutilation that's going on. This is insane. He says to be aware of the dogs. These are the legalistics, the Judaizers that were following him around, him and his cohorts. As they would start a church and it's growing and it's healthy, then the legalistics would come in. The Judaizers would come in and say, fine, I know you put your faith in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. We're totally cool with that. But you still need to obey the Ten Commandments. You still need to get circumcised. You still need to wear the clothes a certain way. Your haircut has to be a certain way. You have to go to church on a certain day. And all these things start filtering. That's legalistic. That's the law. And it's creeping back into the church, Paul. And it's not good. You beware of those dogs. Now, what dogs is he referring to here? Well, we see in the scriptures, there's two different words for the word dog. In this case, it's kunas, and that means a ravages pack of dogs. He says these Judaizers are just ravages dogs that you know that wandered around the countryside at that time. These dogs were not like the dogs that we have today. <laughs> Our dogs are pampered and dressed, and they had all the little bows and bustles. And They're cute little things, and you carry them in little bags, and everywhere you go. No, no, these dogs were ravages packs of animals that would seek to devour and to kill whatever is in their path. Now, that's important because these dogs, these ravages wild dogs were going around attacking the gospel, the truth, the simple truth of the gospel. And so Paul was warning, these are just dogs that are just coming around. And it's dangerous to you. Why? Because in those days, you got bit by one of those dogs. They were probably more than likely diseased. And they, you just didn't sit there and go, I got bit by a dog. I sue. No, I'm going to call 911. I'm going to find someone to give me antibiotics and take care of this and suture me back up. They didn't have any of that. You got bit by one of those dogs. You get near one of those dogs. You could die. Paul is saying, you get around one of these Judaizers that are these legalistic people that are around you. You could die. You could get hurt. Don't get near them. Don't entertain them. Don't listen to them, because also not only are they they like dogs, but he says he's beware of evil workers. And he's talking to religious leaders about religious leaders here. These are evil workers. These religious religiosity type people coming into the church. He's describing both what the legalistics do, they're doing evil work here. But it was also a word against their emphasis on the righteousness with God by works. Paul would admit they would have a concern for works, but they were evil workers trying to do this work. So many times you look at there and say, oh, they're religious people. Look how pompous they look. Look at how, the way they carry themselves and the way they talk and the way they pray and the way they do this and do that and do the do's and do the don'ts. And oh, aren't they just, they look so righteous and so so perfect. He's saying to these people who are going around like that, they're evil. They're doing evil work. Don't get near it. Don't listen to them. Don't follow them. Because it's going to hurt you. Don't do it. Why? Because they're into mutilation. Now remember, it was the Jewish law in the Old Testament to be separated, the Jews from the Gentiles. And how you distinctly made that happen was an external um, uh, expression or external view of circumcision to separate the Jews from the Gentiles. So it was part of the law. The law is not bad. But what he's saying now in Jesus Christ, you don't have to be circumcised to be separated for God. It's a mutilation. It's just destruction of the flesh. Don't do it. You don't have to do it. He's speaking to the believers here in Philippi. And this is a very harsh word that he's using here of mutilation. Because these Judaizers come around saying, "Become a Jew first first, before then you become a Christian. And that is just legalism. Just legalism. Now it's interesting, Paul and the readers here knew that the Jews at the time used to call the Gentiles what? Dogs. They're the lowest of the lowest, and you don't associate with them. Paul's saying these to the believers of Jewish believers, or in this case, Jewish Judaizers, those who uh, you know believed in a form of Jesus, but want also say you have to follow Judaism as well. He says they're just dogs; they're they're evil workers, and they're mutilating you. Why are you doing that? Don't do it. For we are. All For we are the circumcision, he says to the believers. We are the circumcision. Who worship God in the Spirit. Rejoice in Christ Jesus and have no confidence in the flesh. So he says now to the believers here in Philippi, we are the circumcision. Not that they were circumcised, but we're circumcision in the fact that who worship God in the Spirit. He says that the Jewish legalists consider themselves to be the ones that were true circumcised and truly right with God because not only they believe in Jesus was the Messiah, but that they also were circumcised. But Paul's declaring that he and his followers were the true circumcision. Why? Because he defines it here as a person who worships God in the Spirit as opposed to the flesh. Or or, or, uh, worship in the spirit, except for, uh, other than those who are worshiping external worship, emphasis. Because you always can tell the legalist. You can always tell the religiosity when the emphasis is not on worshiping God in the spirit and truth, but in the external things that you do. You lit the candles. You have the lightings, you dress up a certain way, you go on a certain day, and you have all of these things that you must comply to. You know you're talking legalism. You know you're talking, you're into, like a Judaizer telling you, you must do those things. No, God says we're to worship him in spirit and in truth. And that's what we do. We don't get into the the religiosity type stuff. It is not about the building. It doesn't make you holy because you walked into a building that looks and designed and cost millions of dollars to create to make it look holy. No. The church is you. Christ lives in you, not the building. When we leave, this building is empty. <laughs> you know, when we show up, God shows up. We're two or more gathered in his name. Praise the Lord. Amen? So here we look at this and we see Paul's making it very clear. We are the circumcised. We are with worship God in the spirit. Why? Because we rejoice in Christ Jesus. That's the true circumcision. The joy is not found in their own ability to be justified before God by the law. Or by some law keeping. I've done my duties. I've read my Bible today. I've, I've done my prayers. I've done this. And you check, 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 check. Oh, God is going to love me today. You're not thinking rightly. Keep showing up because when you study the word of God more with us, you'll get out of that legalistic religiosity and realize we pray and we talk to God because we want to talk to God, not because we have to. We study the word of God because we want to study the word of God because we want to hear from him, not because we have to. We're obedient to God because it's our relationship to our Heavenly Father, because God says to us as children to be obedient to what He says. And we do that with a glad heart. We're children who are not rebellious against our Father, but our children that says, I love you, Dad. Uh, What do you need me to do? What do you want me to do? Because I want to please you. Paul's saying here, we rejoice in Jesus Christ and we have no confidence in the flesh. We, this is this third characteristic that he's pulling out here for us. He says the, the third thing he says is, 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 is this, this is true circumcision here. We don't focus on the flesh, the things, the external works and, the, and, the, and, the, and, the, and our abilities to be righteous before God and do that. We don't put trust in that at all. But only our confidence is in Jesus Christ. Our entire confidence is based on our relationship with Jesus Period. That's it. It's as simple as that. So Paul made it very clear. And he goes and continues. And he actually, I love this part. It's very well known. Many people remember these verses and can quote them. But he says here in verses 4 through 6, notice seven things he says to actually give a contrast and understanding to bring his point across here. He says, I could have tremendous confidence in the position in the flesh I once held. I could have had all the reasons. Why? He gives us seven. The first four is all based on heredity. The The last three is all based on his personal decision. Look at what he says. He says, though I also might have confidence in the flesh. Oh, I could have confidence in the flesh, he's telling. Why? Why is that based on? If anyone... Else thinks he may have confidence in the flesh, I more so. So he's saying to the Philippian be, uh, believers, these Judaizers who were bragging and boasting about their ability of their relationship with God and their, their what they've done and they don't do and all these other things, right? i more than them. If I wanted to boast, I could outdo them with my, my, my resume. Oh, they would be... They would be running from the hills if I came and showed my resume. What is the resume? He writes it in the letter here. He says right here, verse 5. Circumcised on the eighth day of the stock of Israel and out of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, concerning the law, a Pharisee, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, concerning the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. Now, he can boldly put it in letter. He puts it in writing. He says right now, wait a minute, I can boast because I can say I was circumcised on the eighth day according to Leviticus law, chapter fourteen, or verse, chapter 12, verse 3. He says, I follow to the T. Why? Because I am from a, um, a Jewish family. My, my father and my mother were both Jewish. I am from the stock of Israel. He, that means I come from the tribe of the lineage of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Therefore, I am to the, uh, the God's covenant with them. I am lined up perfectly. Are they, do they? Did they get circumcised on the eighth day? Do their mother and father, are they 100% Jewish uh, coming from the tribe of uh, Jacob? Mine is. I, Paul said, I, I come from the tribe of Benjamin. That was a very distinguished tribe. Why? Because Benjamin was the distinguished, because he came from that lineage, or for that tribe, the very first king, Saul, for the tribe of Judah. For Israel, was the first king, Saul. And the tribe of Benjamin was the only tribe that was in the city of Jerusalem, in that area, was devoted to Judah when the two uh, the, the separated into two, uh, two, two kingdoms, they stayed within that Judah in lower kingdom in the city of Jerusalem. He had all the distinction of the tribe of Benjamin. Again, what a pedigree. What a, what a name you have behind you. How proudful and prideful you could be based on the fact that look at where I came from. Well, look at my family tree lineage looks like. But Paul says, not only I was circumcised, yes, I came from the tribe of Jacob directly, the covenant. My parents are Israelites. I am through and through here from the tribe of Benjamin. Living in the boundaries of the city of Jerusalem. But he says also he was a Hebrew of Hebrews. My blood was pure Hebrew. All Jewish, man, through and through. Because this was such a contrast to those who were going around trying to uh, mess up the churches that he was starting. Because many of those back in those, those Jews would embark and leave that Jewish culture and actually embrace the Greek culture and bring in and spread through the Mediterranean this this cross-hybrid kind of stuff. They loved the Greek uh, culture. They wanted nothing to do anymore with it. But they were still playing there. But he's saying, I was the Hebrew of Hebrews. I was it, man. He says, concerning the law, he says, Paul, then listed three things, notice here. Three things that were his by personal choice and conviction to follow in his young life. He says, I was concerning the law. I was a Pharisee. I was a Pharisee, but it tells us among all, I am the elite of the elite of the Jews. Paul was an elite sect. The Pharisees were a religious leading group that kept the law in mirac- uh, meticulously, miraculously, just working, 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 working to follow every little detail of the law, and he did that as a religious leader. There was only six thousand of them at any given time. So he says, concerning the law, I kept the law better than most of everybody and anybody that would came. We were only 6,000. Are you part of the 6,000? Were you a Pharisee? No, those Judaizers were not a Pharisees. The word Pharisees mean the name alone separates themselves. It's called the separated ones. And they had separated themselves off from all the common life, from all the common tasks in order to make one, their aim, their pure aim every day was to not be like the rest of the people. They would have to come to us because we're more holy than they. It's that elitist mentality. He was the poster child of a Pharisee. Now, concerning the law, he said Pharisee, but he also said concerning zeal. You think the Judaizers are all full of zeal and all excited and ramped up and jumping up and down the stage and pacing and all. He must be on fire for the Lord. That means nothing. you talking about zeal? I persecuted the church. Matter of fact, I was so devoted to the, the Judaism that I saw that this church that was growing and the followers of Jesus Christ was a threat to Judaism, and I went out there and I did whatever I could in my power to persecute and to kill every Christian I can find. That group called The Way, I'm going to find them, I'm going to hunt them down, and I'm going to bring them. I'm going to take them out. Because I am the most powerful Pharisee and the most zeal than anybody else. Because I go to my... Z- Pharisee buddies, how many people did you bring from the way to persecution? You know how it is. Let's have a contest how many people you can bring. That's just legalism. It's just, it's just not of God. So we see here, he says, I persecuted and I continue to persecute with such zeal. We see in Romans 10, 2, he says, Paul it observes that Jews of his day have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. And that's a very dangerous, legalistic type person. This Judaizers had zeal to do what they wanted to do, but it was not based on truth. It was not based on the knowledge of God. And it's so true in our own in our own life that God, in his life, he confronted him on the road to Damascus. And when God met Paul, Paul met God right there. Paul's conversion took place there in Acts 9, verses 1 through 2. And he had that relentless pursuit of persecuting the church until he met God and now knows God. And everything changed on the road to Damascus. radical change and it's so true for you and I when you come to know God there should be a change in your life a conversion is a change it's not a outward change it's an inward change you know without a doubt in your mind You know that God changed you if you're saved. Why? Because you know what you were like prior to meeting Jesus. And then when you met Jesus, all of a sudden, change took place. And it's an incredible moment Paul is saying here in his talk. I was, considering the law, I was a Pharisee. I was a poster child for Pharisee the elitist of uh, religious people. So zealous for that because I was willing to kill people for the, the fact that they believed in Jesus. And then concerning the righteousness which is in the law, I was blameless. No one could look at my life and say, I know what you're saying, Paul. I know what you say, but I watch your life. I know what you're like inside your house. I know what you're like when you're around your buddies. And I know what you're like when you're on the street. No, no. He was blameless. Not that he was perfect because Paul understood he wasn't perfect. But when it comes to following those little tiny details and even religiously made up details, he kept it to a t. Paul knew the standard of righteousness under the law. And he followed that standard over and over. And even though he did that, and he can declare himself blameless, he still knew he fell short of God's holy standard. It's like that young, rich young ruler we see in Luke 18, verses 18 through 23. He came to Jesus, remember, and he says, oh, I kept that, I kept this, and I kept that for my youth. And he was going off, oh, I'm doing good here. I've kept it, check, 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 check. I don't do the check, check. But Jesus knew the heart, didn't he? And Jesus saw right through all of the facade and all the self-righteous keeping of of the standards. He says, give away all your riches, riches, all your stuff, give it away. And we don't know clearly what happened to that young man. But we do know in the scripture, what happened to him? He walked away rejoicing in the Lord. No, we don't see that. He walked away sorrowfully. Because God touched the point where no one else was willing to touch or he was willing to admit what was in his life was not right according to God's holy standard. He had idols. He relied upon his own wisdom and strength to make riches. I you don't know me. I've got, see my name? I got the I got the letters after my name here, you know. I got the pedigree. Did you see my walls, my loving wall? I got my I got my certificates and my you know university, blah, 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 blah. Yeah, you'd see this, right? Paul says, it's just nothing. Matter of fact, he actually just talks about that a little bit here, doesn't he? He says, but what things were gained to me? All the training and education and positions and power, and money, a name, prominence, all of that. He says, all these things were gained to me. These I have counted loss for Christ. I just, it's no longer who I am all that is lost it's 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 it, it, it was it's gone it's no longer who i am it's not who i who i live for i am free from all of that yes it was gained to me yes i made a livelihood from it i made all kinds of you know benefits from it But it's still, I count it loss for Christ, because Paul's attitude was: there's nothing, nothing that he achieved was of value compared to his relationship with Jesus Christ. Now, keep in mind, when he's writing this letter, he is thirty. It's been thirty years since his conversion on the road to Damascus. 30 years. 25 years actively in the ministry serving. 25 years. And he has had 25 years, 30 years since conversion, to be able to reflect everything that's happened in his life and to look back and write this letter with such confidence that I had gained so much. But I can tell you over the last 30 years, it is all lost. I count it loss for Christ. He says in verse 8 and 9, or verse 8, Yet indeed I also count all things loss for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish that I may gain Christ. He says not only do I count all that gain as loss to Christ, but he says indeed I count all things loss. Not just those things that are in my religious little pocket, but my entire life. All of that is lost compared to, and counts as lost compared to my relationship with, in this case he says, the excellence of knowledge of of Christ Jesus. See, it wasn't so much that those things were worthless in themselves. Getting the training that he got, did the things, I mean, there's a lot of great things that came out of his life, I'm sure. But compared to the greatness of the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, and that knowledge means, in the, in the Greek is gnosos, which means a knowledge of by experience. He says, my experience, my relationship with Jesus Christ is far greater in wealth than anything of the world. Has, offered, has to offer me Paul said he, ca- he counted he counted once in there in verse 7 now he's counting again here in verse 8 he says I also count he says I, I count the fact that when I got converted I got saved I remember that now I see uh, my life here after the some 30 years later I still count it as lost. I don't regret losing all of it. What did he lose? Now remember, he's in prison. He has nothing. He lost his position, his power, his money, his family. He lost everything. you know what's sad? Because today, people will compromise. Yeah, I'd, I'd grow closer to Christ if my spouse would come to church. Or my kids would come to church. Or my grandparents would come to church. Or if my job would let me. One of my buddies would think. It's just, you you realize the church is, you know, about 20 20 minutes away. That's really, really far. Do you know what the temperature is outside? We'll have all kinds of reasons that we can rationalize, that the enemy uses and our flesh uses to deter us growing and maturing, as Paul said. How many times I have heard in the ministry you have no idea, Pastor, what happened in my past. You have no idea what's going on in my lifetime. Paul is saying to the believers, all the good and everything I've lost, I can tell you that my relationship with Jesus is the greatest thing that has ever happened to me. Rejoice in the Lord. Pressing on to Jesus every day. Because there is no other way. And so as he continues and we see this... And he's, he, he didn't call it, you know, my past was, I can, if I really focus on it, it was really wonderful. It was great, man. I had a, you should have sold the house. You should have sold the money in the bank account. I mean, I had the job. It was really sweet. We had vacations to the Mediterranean. You won't believe how many vacations I can take. And people promptly Bowed and moved away from me as I walked through with my robes, and oh, everyone just loved me. Would actually almost worship me. I would tell them, "Oh no, no, get up, get up, get up! Don't you don't have to kiss my ring? No, no, no." But if you notice, he says, "I count them as rubbish, dung, excrement." It's Smelly, it's bad. It's just supposed to be flushed. That's how he saw it. Compared to his relationship with Jesus. Now, Paul continues here, and I love here in verses 9, 10, and 11, he really weaves in here this this arrangement of what we call the classic um, systematic theology. Justification sanctification, glorification. Watch this. I love it. Verse 9, we see justification. He says, be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith. I'll give you two verses. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, That whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. He who believes in him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Another verse. 2 Corinthians 5.21, For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. See, Paul says, I want to be found in him. He's going to re- he says, I renounce all of my self-righteousness. All of my pedigree, all of my inheritance, all of what I, my my things I set out in zeal to do and and was in the position of Pharisee and and I was blameless and following all the religious rules. All of that, I'm going to set aside my own self righteousness here and live by the righteousness which is from God by faith. The foundation of his spiritual life was that. Was Jesus had done for him, not in what he has done for Jesus or was doing or would be doing for Jesus in the future. You're not made righteous by what you do, what you're doing, or what you promise to do. But he says in this verse that through faith in Christ then brings a knowledge of how God makes his righteousness m- available. It is through Jesus' faithfulness a person's total reliance on him is how you are made righteous. See, Jesus went to the cross. He was faithful. He completed his mission. On the cross, he said what? It is finished. Say it again. It is finished. It's because you put your trust in the finished work of Jesus Christ of what? he did in his faithfulness that's what makes us righteous that's what saves us not because of what you do is because what he has already done too many christians and i am included in that work way too hard to be a christian We must rest in the position that God has given us in the righteousness that he robes us with and enjoy and rejoice in the Lord in it. Breathe, my brothers and sisters, breathe. Enjoy your walk with the Savior of the world. Paul here exposes such a great difference between a legal relationship that was stressed in his whole life. He was, again, he was a poster child. But he's bringing light to these Philippian believers. Let me bring light to you the difference between a legal relationship with Christ versus a, a, a grace. And he... Gives us differences in this between this living and trusting in your own righteousness and living and trusting in God's righteousness given through the faith in, in Christ. So he sits here and he compares these two, works and by grace, by works and by grace. And he says, <clears throat> one is it works is as a it's a law sets the standards, and then demands and determines the success of that endeavor of how well you kept those standards. And Paul says, I tried it, been there, done it, had the T-shirt, Pharisee. I couldn't do it. Couldn't do it. I tried it by works. It doesn't work. Then then you choose grace. Christ's life, death, becomes the hope. Paul found grace and faith to be the only way to have fellowship with God. Grace means that if persons cast themselves onto the mercy of God, trusting what Jesus did will be applied to them. God, forgive me, I need you. And it's by that hope and that trust that the finished work will be applied to your life. And it's by grace Grace freed Paul from the self-effort to gain his salvation. That's what works is, is to try to gain your salvation. Enable him to devote himself to the things that follow salvation. We are to follow salvation. We are not to try to gain salvation. We're to follow Jesus. Follow our salvation. And the problem with the false teachers, these dogs that were coming, these evil workers, is that they were twisting and changing that faith. Not only did he contrast between the by works versus by grace, but he also contrasted two different righteousness here. Keeping the law produced and achieved righteousness. I did it, I did it, I did it, I did it. Ah, God's gonna make me righteous. No, no, no. Versus an imputed righteousness. Imputed means it has been done, it has been given. Jesus said on the cross it is finished, it's already completed, it's done. And he, when you put your trust in that faithfulness of the work that Jesus did. Then righteousness is imputed into you. And I. Couldn't earn it. Couldn't work for it. It is a free gift. Just received it. Now what's interesting. We now see in verses 10, 11, sanctification and glorification. He says that I may know him and the power of his resurrection. <laughs> Paul's saying, I simply just want to know Jesus. His heart was, I just want to know Jesus. I just want to know more and more. It means I want to mature in my understanding and knowledge of Jesus. I just want to know my Savior more and more and more. It wasn't something a legalist would pray for. But when you're not a legalist, what you do is when you're saved by grace, it is not something you just just keep it really simple of just wanting not to perform, but to sit and be still and to receive. Paul just wanted Jesus and not himself. He says, "I want I may know Him." And he says, "Not only do I want to know Him and the power of His resurrection, I want to know the have the know the power, receive the power." We're saying it today. And oh, that is so great for so many Christians. Oh, I want to know Jesus. I want to know his power. I want to be changed. I want to know that he's changed me on in the inside and taking out all this stuff. I don't want any more out of my life, and I just want more of him. And that's easy. That's easy to say. It's easy to raise your hands and worship that. It's easy to think that through when you're in tough times. Oh, I want to know you more, Jesus. And I need your power to get through this circumstance and through this situation. But notice where he didn't stop there in verse 10. He says, and the fellowship of his sufferings, <laughs> being conformed to his death. That's the full circle, the full story right here. He says, I'm doing the work. I'm going to be faithful to do that work in you. And I'm going to have you understand and know me more and more every day. That's called maturity, sanctification. And I'm going to have you reveal and see the power that I have and giving you the power to do a change in your life that no one else can do. Not even yourself. But I'm also going to give you an understanding and you're going to be like your Lord more and more to the point of the fellowship of his sufferings and being conformed to his death. You will die of self more and more each and every day you follow me. If you're really following me. But knowing Jesus means knowing his power. A new life that is imparted to us now and not when we die. He's already empowered. He's power to change you now. Don't get wrapped up into things that, oh, I'm saved and now I can live however I want to live. You have been bewitched. You have been deceived by religion. Once you give your life to Christ, you put your faith in Jesus Christ of His faithfulness and the cross imputes to you His righteousness and power. He changed, converted you. He is now going to do a work of sanctification in your life. You will change. You can't just live in sin anymore. You can't live haphazardly, freely live in the sin and, and the miry muck and change lust of the eyes and lust of the flesh and the pride of life. You no longer can do those things. They'll eat you alive. You'll feel the, the pressure on you. Like, oh, what are you doing? You can't do that. You can't say that. You can't treat that person that way. You can't go there. Whereas before you were so free to do that. But once you've been imparted, the power of his resurrection, change will take place. And we want that change. Amen. We want the change. Amen. We do. I hope you do. Paul certainly did. Because the power of his resurrection is an evidence evidence of the power of God working in and through him as a child of God. The power of his resurrection is is a justifying power. It's proof that the sanctification of the cross was accepted as payment in full for your life. The power of his resurrection is a life-giving power. It gives you power today to live this life that God's called you and I to do. To connect with Jesus. To receive that same resurrection life. And the power of the resurrection is also a consoling and comforting power. Power. It promises that our friends and loved ones who are dead in Christ will live with him. That we will see them again. Now Paul says here the fellowship of his sufferings, and you go back if you remember in Romans 8:17. It says there, if children, then heirs. Heirs of God, joy heirs with Christ, if, if indeed we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified together. Such a promise for you and I. That like Christ who suffered, like Christ who's gone through these things, we too may suffer as well. But we will be glorified together with him as well. This is temporary light affliction, the Bible says, that we go through to eternal life that's amazing but Paul says I want to be conformed to his death I want to be changed I want to come that I may attain it means I I may come but Paul didn't doubt that he was saved but he he did long mightily for the completion of his salvation remember he said earlier in the letter work out your salvation He, he earnestly wanted that to happen in his life too He wanted that work to be done in his body, and he knew that he had not already attained it. I am so—I love this the, this 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 humbleness of Paul that I may attain the resurrection of his death. That he says in verse twelve: "Not not that I have already attained or am already perfected." So he's like, "I know I'm like you." I, you know, sometimes religious leaders walk around like they got their life all together and it's perfect and it's like a Facebook story, you know, everything, everything looks perfect and everything's perfectly working out and there's no problems and issues in their lives and and snap, snap, got it. And, you know, and everyone thinks that's the life that's perfect for a pastor or for someone who God's called to teach the word of God and shepherd the uh, flock. But I tell you, Anyone who says they've arrived and they're somehow holier than holy and they can wear a ring and robes because they've arrived. hes No, no, we're like Paul. I have not already attained this. I know the truth and I'm writing the truth and making sure you understand the truth. But I'm too, God is working in my life too, you know. I'm not already attained. I'm not already perfect. I love that because so many people have this put pastors in a pedestal I know you don't do me because you know my life but you know I'm not perfect but for some that's how they se themselves they, they walk in and they walk down the aisle when everyone I mean it's just crazy to me when I see it in the religious circles but Paul is so humble he says but I press on that I may hold, lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus has already laid hold of me He says, I'm not perfect. I haven't attained everything I'm telling you right now, but I know the truth and I'm pressing on. I'm continuing to press toward Jesus. I'm going to lay hold of that which Christ Jesus has already hold of me. He's got a hold of me. I'm just going to bear hug him and and jump on his back and hold on tight. Because I know that is right. He says, brethren, verse 13, brethren, I do not count myself to have apprehended everything here. I don't have it all figured out, but one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward to those things which are ahead, I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Now, Paul is saying, I know I'm not where I need to be in my walk with Christ. But he says, but I want to mature. I want to grow. I want to mature rightly in a way that's good and right, and that is because I want to keep my eyes on Jesus and continue to do it. Regardless of situations or circumstances, I don't care. These Judaizers are coming out. I'm warning you. I'm, I keep warning you. It's not tedious to me to warn you because I keep focused on Jesus. I encourage you to continue to focus on Jesus. He saved you. He's going to do a good work in you. And ultimately, we're going to see the glorification. We are going to be in his presence. As he stated there earlier, right? He says, I may obtain to the resurrection from the dead. That means we're going to have eternal life. We'll be with Christ. But we don't want a facade. As a Christian, we do not want a facade. We don't want to walk around like we have obtained and somehow we've arrived and, and apprehended all of these truths of God and our life is perfect. Because you have a facade or something you're trying to put on of that, that Christian smile. God bless you, brother. Isn't that a beautiful, blessed day? Isn't Everything's perfect. No. Be real, be humbled. But also notice what he says here. He says, I haven't kept all apprehended, but one thing I do, I'm forgetting those things which are behind. He's not bringing the Pharisee life in with him. He's not bringing the past that's bad and ugly and everything else. Yes, it's part of his testimony. He didn't say, I've never been a Pharisee. Oh, I've never persecuted the church. I never was a drug addict. I was never an alcoholic. I was never abused. He didn't declare that. None of that happened. He's just saying that no longer dictates my future and my present stance with Christ. The bad past or even the really good past does not dictate my future or what I, how I live for Christ today. And, and, and the saddest part is so many Christians today hold on to the past. Or hold on to things that bring them down and it doesn't, it causes them not to rejoice in the Lord. It causes them not to press on to Jesus. Because they're so fixated on the past. Or it could be the completely opposite. I've met people, not here of course, not any of you. But other people in the business world. Their whole focus Is there a 5, 10, 15, 20-year plan? I'm going to retire, and my whole life is about my retirement. Don't stop the retirement. I am almost to that 20, man. I'm almost to the point my 401K can allow me to do it. And I no, don't ask me to do anything for God. Unless it's convenient, and it's not asking me to give anything. It's amazing. If it's not the past, it's the future that causes you not to keep pressing forward, to to live out what we see at the very end here in verses 13 and 14 there. It causes you to not reach forward to those things which are ahead. And notice here, what is he reaching out to? Verse 14, I press toward the goal for the prize prize of the upward, what? Call of God in Christ Jesus. My brothers and sisters, you, if you don't know this, you're going to know it today. When you got saved, and even before you, I say, God created you for a purpose. And when you got saved, specifically, he has a calling on your life that you are and I are to fulfill that call. The question is, do you, toward Jesus to find out what that call is? Do you even interested in what that call is? And let me tell you something else, my brothers and sisters, because I love you. I want to make sure you know this. When you fulfill that call, that's when Jesus takes you home. Did you know that? He'll call you home. I'm going to work as hard as I can to do exactly and be obedient to what God's called me each day. Why? Because I have the upward knowledge and understanding, I could be in the arms of Jesus if I fulfill my call sooner than later. I don't know about you, but I want to fulfill my call sooner than later. I want to be with Jesus sooner than later because there's nothing in this world, absolutely nothing in this world compared to my relationship with Jesus and being in his arms and him holding me. dude, Dude, I'm telling you, There's nothing better than that hug. And we see here, look at at Paul knows. We have the glimpse of Paul's calling. Look in the scripture here, and I'll give you a few scriptures here. Jesus laid hold of Paul. Why? What was part of his plan? In Romans 6, 4, it says Paul is to make him a new man. Paul would lay a hold of, of what to see in converting work of Jesus completely carried out in himself. He knew that was his plan. That God wanted to do a work and change him. He knew that. That was part of, the, of holding on to Jesus, that was part of his plan. We also see that Jesus laid hold of Paul to conform him into the image of Jesus Christ. We see that in Romans 8:29. We see that Jesus laid hold of Paul to make him a what? A witness Acts 9:15. Paul wanted, he wanted to be an experience of Jesus to testify of what Jesus did in his life. He wanted to be a witness. He knew that was his call. We also know that Jesus laid hold of Paul to make him an instrument in the conversion of others. Acts 9.15. Paul would hold on to that work and bring others to Jesus. He knew that's what God called him to do. But we also see in Acts 9.16 that Jesus laid hold of Paul to bring him into suffering. Paul knew that he would suffer for Christ, and he was completely fine with that. Why? Because he knew that was the calling that God had on his life, to suffer for him. And we also see in Philippians 3.11 that Jesus laid hold of Paul so that the Apostle Paul might attain to the resurrection from the dead. That he would hold on to that heavenly hope of knowing that he would be absent from the body, being present with the Lord. He knew that call. And he lived his life with knowing that plan. All the details and who he would meet and where he would go and how he would live and if he had any money or no money at all, none of that mattered. None of it. He just knew what the plan was. That God was doing a work in his life. He was going to have become more, more like Jesus. He was going to be used by God to lead people to Jesus. And, and, and be a witness to be a light and salt into wherever he, God took him. He knew that he was going to heaven. He knew his plan. Do you know that's your plan too? Do you know it's your plan too? you hold and grab a hold of that plan are you pressing toward the goal and what's that goal what's that prize to the upward call of God in Christ Jesus our prize is our Lord amen let us keep pressing let us keep pressing on to Jesus